0: this week on the future of sex. That the next big thing in tech is disrupting sex. I just realized that we start having sex before we know a lot about it.
1: Most people's sex education is basically limited to learning how to put a condom on a banana and uh, probably watching porn. And then beyond that, you learn from your own experiences.
2: I'm Bryony, and welcome back. This is the second episode of Future of Sex, the podcast that explores the evolving worlds of sex and tech. Now, before we get started, I want to remind you that this podcast contains explicit language and adult themes. So if you have little ones around, probably a good time to pop in some earphones. Okay, so this is the second part in our two part opening episode about shame and taboo. Hopefully, you've already listened to part one and you want to keep going on this journey, so that's why you're here. But if not, pause this episode, go back to part one and start there. And don't worry, this episode's still here when you finish that one. So on the show today, we're continuing our journey into shame and taboo, but we're taking a slightly different spin on things. We're going to hear from three, what I call modern warriors, who are helping to fight sexual taboo, free people from the shackles of sexual shame, and be really active about it. These three voices are helping to give a singular voice to sexuality without the stigma.
3: moment Hollywood, movies, television, encourage people to think that great sex is wordless. You come together wordlessly. You melt together wordlessly. White curtains flutter in the breeze. You fall back onto the bed wordlessly. Nobody goes, ooh, ow, let me just get that from under me. Nobody goes, is it okay if I do that? Nobody goes, what do you like? You come simultaneously wordlessly, and then ripples dissolve, you wake up next morning, you beam at each other wordlessly. Fuck that shit, because that is not getting anybody anywhere. I said earlier Make Love Not Porn is an accident. What is no accident is that I've spent 30 years working in advertising in the business of communication. I know that everything great in life and business is born out of great communication. Sex is no different. Great sex is born out of great communication. And the more that we are authentic, open, and honest about sex in popular culture as a whole, the more we reflect the fact that that you have to talk to each other during sex. That, you know, um, sex is something where you must find out you know, what the other person likes, what the other person wants, obviously has the other person consented. That's when you get to really, really great, amazing sex. Mutual exploration, mutual communication, acknowledgement that every sexual partner you will ever have is different. What worked with one may not work with another. You know, we just all have to talk more about sex, and that is Make Love Not Porn's vision for the future. I first met Cindy Gallup at her apartment. She
2: greeted me at the door in this black leather dress and these two gold chains around her neck. And one of those chains had the Facebook thumb, you know, the iconic Facebook like sign dangling off it. And the other simply had the word Cindy. And in my head, I'd built up this badass persona of Cindy. Um, And I'd watched her TED talks online. I'd seen articles she'd written. I'd been following her on Twitter. And she's basically a badass, and she perfectly embodied it when she opened that door. And if you haven't heard the name Cindy Gallup before, let me just give you a little primer. Prior to pioneering the sex tech movement, Cindy carved out an enormously successful career, very high profile in advertising. She was the founder and former chair of the US office of BBH, or Bartle Bogle Hegarty. And basically, she is a woman that lives for people to tell her it can't be done. I'm going to fucking well show you. Yep, yeah, that is always Cindy's response. Okay, so she welcomes me into her midtown penthouse and that evening, while the sun was setting around us, the second meeting of women in sex tech took flight. It was myself, Cindy, and 28 other women gathered in her living room, which she calls her, her apartment, the sky apartment. And so we were all, you know, sitting in couches on chairs, on the floor, and everyone was there to talk about the challenges of building and raising money for products in a climate where sex is really taboo. Of course, Cindy was the ringleader of the group.
3: So first of all, um, I am ferociously championing female sex tech founders because it's my observation, this is true in every other sector, the most innovative, disruptive things in sex tech today are coming from women because we are finally owning our sexuality and finding really innovative ways to leverage it. As I like to say, women challenge the status quo because we are never it. That first meeting was eye-opening
2: for me. First of all, I couldn't believe I could meet with a group of women all working in sex tech. Uh, sure, a women in tech meetup, but women specifically in sex tech. I mean, this is this is the reason why I love New York. Any niche interest you have, you can find a community for. So later on, after the meeting, I got a chance to sit down with Cindy one on one and learn more about her mission to make sex social. <laughs>
3: I date younger men um, who tend to be in their 20s and 9 or 10 years ago, and and bear in mind this is before the media ever picked up on any of this, I began realising through dating younger men that I was encountering an issue that would quite honestly never have crossed my mind if I had not encountered it so very intimately and personally. I realized I was experiencing what happens when two things converge and I stress the dual convergence because most people think it's only one. So I realized I was experiencing what happens when today's total freedom of access to hardcore porn online meets our society's equally total reluctance to talk openly and honestly about sex. It's the convergence of both of those factors that results in porn becoming, by default, the sex education of today in not a good way. The issue isn't porn. The issue is the complete absence in our society of an open, healthy, honest conversation around sex in the real world, which, if we had it, would, among so many other benefits, also mean people would then bring a real-world mindset when they view what is purely artificial entertainment, our tagline at Make Love Not Porn is pro sex, pro porn, pro knowing the difference. And our mission is one thing and one thing only, which is to help make it easier to talk about sex. Talk about sex openly and honestly in the public domain, and by that I mean parents to kids, teachers to classrooms, everybody to everybody. And equally importantly, talk about sex openly and honestly privately in your intimate relationships. And so what I decided to do, therefore, was to take every dynamic that exists out there in social media currently, and apply them to the one area no other social network or platform is ever going to go, in order to socialize sex, and to make real world sex and talking about it socially acceptable, and therefore ultimately just as socially shareable as anything else we share on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram. So what is social sex? We're not porn, we're not amateur, we're building a whole new category online that has never previously existed, social sex. (laughs) So our competition isn't porn, it's Facebook and YouTube, or it would be if Facebook and YouTube allowed sexual self-expression and self-identification, which they don't. So um, real world sex videos and make love not porn are not about performing for the camera, They're simply about doing what you do on every other social platform, which is capturing what goes on in the real world as it happens. Social sex is so much more than just watching people having sex. You know, our videos are enormously reassuring because we celebrate real world everything. We celebrate real-world bodies, real-world hair, real-world penis size, real-world breast size. We celebrate the real-world accidents, the funniness, the messiness. We celebrate real-world emotion, real-world love, intimacy. So, because we don't talk about sex in the real world, we have no socially acceptable language with which to do so. The language of porn has rushed in to fill that gap. And that is not good for a number of reasons, um, including the fact that, as you would expect in a male-dominated industry, the language of porn is predominantly male-generated. So the person who coined the term finger-blasting didn't have a vagina. Mm. Because if you have a vagina, you hear the term finger-blasting, you want to cross your legs. The person who coined the term getting her ass railed never got his ass railed. Pounding, banging, slamming, wrecking, destroying. All terms created by people who did not possess the soft internal tissue to which those things are being done. So, at Make Love Not Porn, we are building a new language for real world sex. We tag our videos completely differently from the usual porn drop down menu of anal Asian hairy cream pie, whatever. We tag our videos with terms like juicy, succulent. Our term for oral is downtown. Our tag for anal is deliberately derived from the recipient's experience of anal. Mm. We tag our anal sex videos, ow, oh, ow, oh, ow, oh, hey now. And we do that because we want you to take this language and use it beyond our platform in the real world. Because this is language you can use to talk about sex in public without feeling embarrassed of what's coming out of your mouth, without worrying about being overheard in the bar or the coffee shop. Mm. And it's language you can use to talk about what you want to do in bed in a celebratory, positive and gender equal way. We want to hit the kind of critical mass where one day your real world sex video, Make Love Not Porn, could hit a million rentals at $5 per rental, and we give you half of that income. We are the answer to the global economy, by the way. So that's what I'm doing.
2: But is the world ready for socially shareable sex? After listening to Cindy describe the site, I was curious to see what Make Love Not Porn was like and if the appetite was there to consume what Cindy calls real-world sex.
3: You know, our Make Love Not Porn stars range in age from 19 to 70. Um, We are all-inclusive because real-world sex is all-inclusive. We are LGBT, we are, you know, um, solo videos, masturbation videos, we are couples, we are threesomes, we are, you know, um, BDSM, we are et cetera, et cetera. And as Cindy explained to me,
2: she does her own research to determine exactly what people want to see.
3: I talk to as many 20-something men who say to me, my girlfriends are doing everything they see in porn and it's getting in the way of a real connection. You know, one young man said to me, I've been getting a lot of very pornified blowdrops lately. He's not a fan of the eye rolling the saliva. He said to me, I don't know whether she's really turned on by me or whether it's all performance.
2: And even if there's not an appetite for it within all groups of people, the numbers don't lie. Make Love Not Porn is now result number 49 when you Google the word porn.
3: Cindy's mission,
2: to make it number one without any paid marketing.
3: Our um, regular number two source of traffic is China where interestingly we're not blocked by the way, you don't need a VPN to access makelovenotporn.com and makelovenotporn.tv in China although we get a huge amount of Chinese traffic that therefore lands on an English language site and bounces off and so one of the reasons I want to raise funding is to translate into a few key languages but even when the country is a relatively small country it still rockets the number two. So last year somebody wrote about us in Colombia and Latin America Instantly, Colombia was number two source of traffic. Earlier this year, somebody wrote about us in Serbia. Serbia rocketed to number two. Um, you know, earlier on in the summer, somebody wrote about us in Switzerland. Switzerland instantly became number two source of traffic and, and Switzerland and Serbia are tiny countries. Our members write to us now, Make Love Not Porn Stars, and they say the sex in that video was incidental. I want what you guys have. I saw the way you looked, other. I saw the way your eyes met. You know, I hope one day I can find that with somebody. So um, I cannot tell you what a powerful force um, social sex is at scale. I mean, we have a Make Love Not Porn baby, A couple wrote to us and said, we've just come back from the doctor, been trying for a kid for ages. The scan has proved what we suspected. Our child was conceived the night we watched this particular video on Make Love Not Porn. And they said, we're not going to say we couldn't have done it without you, but you really helped. Incredible. And and incidentally, something, something else unique about us is we are the only place on the Internet where porn stars share the sex they have offset in the real world. Because porn stars have real-world sex too. That is completely different from the sex they perform in front of the camera. And so our gay, straight, lesbian, trans porn star friends are sharing with us the sex they have in their real-world relationships with their real-world partners, and they talk on those videos about how different it is um, from the sex they perform professionally. So how hard is it to build
2: a sex tech product in a taboo industry? While the media coverage might be phenomenal actually building it can be close to impossible. Cindy has been let down by countless operators, ones that most entrepreneurs rely on to set up their foundations of the business, like email services and servers. She's received hate mail. She's been shut down and rejected more times than she can remember. And basically,
3: in her own words, You are going to go through absolute, total, utter, complete bloody fucking hell. This
2: is what it's like for not just an individual, but a business to come up against a deeply rooted taboo and start to turn the
3: conversation around. Why are we all so messed up about sex? Why (laughs) wouldn't we talk about it? Why is it... And I've been asked this so many times, I now have my answer down pat. Um, Three three reasons. Um, The first reason is centuries of repression, religion, socio-cultural dynamics in every single country in the world. Um, That's what we have to overcome to gain acceptance of sex tech and a more open, healthy dialogue around sex. The second reason, which taps into what we're discussing right now, is quite frankly the patriarchy. Every single institution historically has been male-dominated, including government, um, religion, again in every country around the world. What that means is that women have never had the opportunity to bring the female lens to bear on sex and sexuality, and now we are. And that is an extraordinary disruption that is going to drive many, many breakthroughs, is already driving many breakthroughs. The third reason why we are still so repressed and ridiculous about sex is, um, quite straightforwardly, there aren't enough people like me. And what I mean by that is Society makes it extraordinarily difficult to innovate and disrupt social narratives around sex. Um, so at the very start of this venture, I said to my team, our marketing strategy is one thing and one thing only, but it's a very difficult thing to achieve. We want one day to be result number one on page number one of every single Google search for the word porn. Um, porn is the, is, is the highest search term that, that sends people to us. Um, and and I, I regularly monitor our progress and bear in mind that we are a tiny bootstrapping startup with no money for either marketing or for SEO and currently we are result number 49 on page five when you Google the word porn. That's astonishing. There are porn sites who would kill for that positioning. And by the way, we're there because we're doing it the way that Google approves of, which is being linked to from quality content. Um, But but, but what what that ties into, um, Bryony, is a very important point um, to do with the challenges we face. I realized very early on that I was going to have to pave my own way. I have to break down the business barriers in our path. If I want to scale Make Love Not Porn to be the billion dollar venture that I know it can be. And so I am doing what I tell other entrepreneurs to do, which is when you have a truly world changing startup, you have to change the world to fit it, not the other way around. So I like to say that I'm in the Steve Jobs business of reality distortion. If reality tells me that I can't grow my startup the way I want to, I'm going to change reality. So, I have a whole tranche of work I do that is aimed at demonstrating to the tech and business world that the next big thing in tech is disrupting sex. I refuse to bow to existing bias and prejudice. I'm out to change it. And I always remember, um, several years ago, I interviewed Larry Flint for um, the opening session of um, an entertainment conference in LA. And I was in the green room with Larry before um, the interview, just going through my questions. And by the way, he and I got on like a house on fire. Uh, We have different points of view on some things, but but we got on enormously well. Um, He actually invited me to have lunch with him the next time I was in LA, and we had a very jolly lunch. Um, But but I was running through my questions, and, and one of the questions I asked him was, Larry, you pioneered in an industry where nobody is ever encouraged to pioneer. And I was going to go on and say, you know, what would you say to other people to encourage them to do the same thing? But he interrupted me and he said, um, I never thought of myself as a pioneer because I just didn't think I was doing anything wrong. I bloody love that quote. You know, don't, don't think you're doing anything wrong. Take yourself out of the shadows. Go loud and proud. And, and, and that's how we all bring sex tech out into the broader business and tech world. It
2: takes resilience and bravery to face a world full of haters and in Cindy's wake came a wave of entrepreneurs out to turn the conversation around about sex. Lorene HD talked to me about her YouTube channel and how she got to be okay living with herpes and openly talking about it. That's coming up right after this short break. get enough of the future of sex? Want to get the latest news delivered in your inbox each week? Head to futureofsex.org now and sign up for the Cheeky Weekly, a free weekly newsletter that covers all you need to know in the future of sex. Welcome back to the future of sex. Okay, so now we're going to talk about probably one of the most shameful aspects of sex, and that is STIs, namely herpes. STIs are considered dirty, they're considered the death knell for anyone's sex life. It's incredible the amount of misinformation we have out there and the lack of conversation around it when it's actually so common. And what do you think the effects are of this? Basically, Anyone that's living with herpes or an STI can feel incredibly lonely. The diagnosis can lead some people to a full-blown depression and others to even stop living their lives. So I'm going to talk to someone who's incredibly inspiring and instead of focusing on the negative of the diagnosis, was inspired to start a YouTube channel this year. Her name is Laureen HD and she started a YouTube channel in order to start an open conversation about a herpes diagnosis. She wanted to share information and reach others struggling with herpes.
0: So I'm gonna go over five do's and don'ts that I have learned from my experience and I will end this video by telling you how I usually go about uh, disclosing my status. Here we go, the first one, don't talk about how it's caught, talk about what it is. So, like I said, my name is Loreen. My um, I, I started a channel, a YouTube channel, about four or five months ago called Loreen HD, um, and it's dedicated to fighting herpes stigma. STIs, STDs, like infection, disease, like all those words are alarming by nature, but they fail to convey useful information. And herpes stigma is something that is a very curious phenomenon because. It is something that you know everybody uh, jokes about and we kind of uh, know what herpes stigma is, yet it really comes from within. It really comes from herpes positives believing in that stigma and kind of like giving up on fighting it and preferring to not talk about it rather than actually speaking up. And until herpes positives will start telling their own story will start shaping the narrative around herpes through their story the stigma will never go away completely which is why i'm doing these videos so
2: i'm going to give you a little bit of context around herpes and a little bit more info herpes virus is basically a skin condition and it has eight or nine strains among them two are considered stis hsv1 or it's commonly known as cold sores, and HSV2, which is genital herpes. And look, they're much more common than you'd even think. More than half of the population in the US has HSV1, even if they don't show any signs or symptoms. HSV1 can be spread from the mouth to the genitals through oral sex. And this is why in some cases, genital herpes are caused by HSV1. And then HSV2, well, about one in six Americans have HSV2. So despite it being as likely as one of your friends being vegetarian, herpes is still largely silenced and left out of the conversation. In fact, I was talking to a friend yesterday from Canada who said he went to the doctor to get a STI test and they don't even do herpes tests anymore because it's so common. Back to Lorreen. So she shared some thoughts with me about what happens around the conversation and the diagnosis when you get it.
0: When you start angling the conversation around STIs, like people are not equipped or empowered to talk about them because uh, the institutions that are supposed to kind of generate the conversation are not doing a good job. In culture, when you think about um, movies like Hangover, where it's like, oh, um, whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas except for herpes, or, you know, uh, Pitch Perfect, where she says that she has notes on her voice and the other one says, well, at least it's not herpes. like this is it's it's okay to joke about it, but when the conversation only becomes about the joke and there's nothing else to balance it out, then it's not okay because it becomes a single narrative and and you're not telling the mm. the whole story. But there's this stigma around it that kind of defines herpes positives as like people that are promiscuous or uh, irresponsible, meaning they're not using protection or uh, or dirty, that like they don't care for their personal hygiene. And because of that narrative, uh, herpes positive feel whenever they learn about their diagnosis, they feel very lonely. And, you know, that doesn't encourage them to talk openly about it and kind of change the conversation and empower them to, um, in a way, protect others. Because when you're able to talk about it and to say, well, you know, we should hold off on sexual activity because I feel like, you know, there's an outbreak uh, not too far that's a way to prevent uh, the spread. So that's why I started this uh, herpes channel is because the stigma affected me for a couple years and it, it shouldn't, it shouldn't affect anyone. And, um, and uh, so far so good. The response has been really, really great.
2: So after just a few months, Lorreen has already had over 25,000 views on YouTube. She has a steady flow of emails coming in each week. So many people are asking her questions. Others are offering support. I mean, I was just blown away and so impressed by her motivation to bust open a taboo like this in such a public forum. And it made me wonder how lonely it must be facing an STI prior to the internet, prior to technology like like this that can connect us all in this way. Looking at Lorreen and there's a few others that are just brave, determined leaders that are, that are really turning up the volume on a topic that for the most part, society is silenced. And I saw many similarities in Lorreen and Cindy. Both of them have found technology as a tool. Both of them are fostering communities and humanity basically to give people the tools to initiate a conversation which is really helpful and something we're definitely not getting in school. And when I was hearing them both talk about the influence of the media and the fact that we can create our own media now, I thought, wow, this is really helping to create a change and it doesn't always have to be so silenced. But it also doesn't always have to do with technology. In fact, Lorraine told me about this amazing project, her first project, which is kind of like a test of sorts, which was really grassroots and offline. What I learned through my
0: channel is that people are really, really hungry to talk about it. And they, you know, they, they just don't know how to initiate the conversation and they don't know um, how to approach it. But they definitely want to talk about it. Um, last year, I did a project called uh, can i ask you a question where i went in parks of new York with like a huge cardboard and i wrote on the cardboard can i ask you a question and i just like sat in parks and i recruited some like hot friends of mine so i was m- trying to maximize the chances of people stopping by and um
2: by the way Lorraine is like extremely beautiful
0: <laughs> thank you <laughs> um and people stopped by like over a hundred people stopped by and they were like what's your question you know they, they were curious and just like that we talked about genital herpes and most of all herpes stigma and i really wanted to uncover like the level of awareness versus level of education the perception of the virus versus the perception of the stigma. Like I had like specific angles that I wanted to uncover and people like no, no one, no one, I swear to God, no one walked away saying like, no, I don't want to talk about this. So through that project, along with comments on a
2: YouTube channel and supportive emails she gets, Lorreen realized how enriching it was for her and for the people who connect with her to be able to discuss something that previously they just didn't have the space for and really, didn't know how to talk about it. And so a lot of the time it meant asking each other the question, "How did you get it? And that's a question
0: that I get asked to a lot like how did you how did you get it? And it's a question that triggers me a little bit because the answer the real answer is I got it by having sex like you know like you like like many other people like, but the answer that they want to hear is, I got it because I was sleeping around, or I got it because I was cheated on, or I got it because uh, I didn't use protection.
2: One thing I learned from Lorene is that condoms aren't the immutable protection from herpes or some STIs transmitted via the skin that we think they are.
0: So if if you have sores that sit or stand outside of the area that is covered by the condom then it's the condom is kind of useless yeah so in the case of uh, skin conditions uh, which is where information is really key is that people think that if you use a condom that automatically means you're safe and for skin conditions like herpes but also like HPV Mm -hmm. also like syphilis you know there are other STIs which are skin conditions and transmittable by skin-to-skin contact um, So people, by not having the information, they just jump to, okay, she must have done something wrong and I wanna know what she did wrong so that by staying away from those behaviors, I will stay away from those STIs. But I think that's a really interesting point too because what people are trying to do is
2: separate themselves from this thing and this not being a possibility for them and this is why it's not gonna happen to me. You know, there's the looking for that separation um, and the other interesting point i think that you b- bring up with skin conditions is you actually don't even need to be having sex to even get herpes you could just be rubbing genitals together and you get herpes even
0: oral sex like people are very adamant about wearing protection using protection uh, during sexual intercourses but um they're not as adamant uh when performing oral sex and when you think about hsv1 which is the one uh, that usually happens on your mouth uh i read this report uh from world health organization last year that was saying that 40 percent of new cases of genital herpes came from cold sores 40 40 percent yeah. and that's that's unbelievable and yet people keep thinking about cold sores like this no big deal um you know, flare up that occurs from time to time, which is actually true. This is where the real perception is. But, however, when you think about the risks, like mm-hmm. the risk is still there, and um and they don't, you know, they're not as considered as the risk um, when we talk about herpes on genitals. Mm-hmm. Um, so the misconception I would say uh, is that you know herpes has a face and has a behavior, which is not true. And I also want to say like yes, when you are promiscuous, you are increasing the chances of catching herpes or any STI. Yes, when uh, you are not using protection, you are increasing the chances. However, that correlation doesn't work when you inverse the order. It's not because you have herpes that you have been sleeping around, that you have not been using uh, protection. And I think people are just very quick to make that a circle and to like make it work Um, both ways. And this is what makes herpes uh, positive suffer is that they feel like people think that they have been sleeping around or that they're irresponsible. And uh, and that's like at the source of them feeling lonely and feeling judged and not feeling like they can talk about it with anyone. Mm My latest video is about, you know, how to keep um, your mental health because even myself, like, I'm very open about it, very vocal. I receive a lot of positive feedback, yet sometimes I'm like, but what if I never meet someone that completely embraces uh, my herpes status? And for me, it's even more complicated. I have people who tell me like, oh, but... For you it's easier because you just talk about your channel and you say like I'm a herpes activist and like people can watch your videos and it's so brave and amazing that they would want to date you and that they would want to go past that yet I've had some experiences where it was a problem because I'm so open about it that you know my partners don't want to be associated with it publicly at least, so they don't have necessarily a problem with the diagnosis, but they have a problem with me being so open about it and them as a result having to answer some questions that they don't want to answer.
2: I love hearing how all these stories encouraged other people to speak up, how it helped other people navigate difficult situations like when do you tell your partner you have an STI? And the story that stands out the most from my conversation with Lorreen is her first day in a new job. It's probably the last place where you want people to find out you have herpes, right, at work. My
0: first week at my job, we were uh, at a holiday party and I get introduced to this guy and five minutes in, he's like, hey, can I ask you a personal question? And I'm like, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm six feet if you want to know. And he's like, no, that's not the question I wanted to ask you. He's like, um, there's this French uh, girl that we know in common that told, who told me that there was a new French Uh, co-workers, so I googled you and the first thing that came up was an article about genital herpes. What's up with that? And, And it was amazing because we actually had an amazing conversation where he asked me all the things that, you know, how many people have it, why is it so common, what can he do to protect himself, how I go about, like, really, really healthy, constructive conversation. And I told him, thank you for asking me because, you know, I feel like I was able to help you and you are probably more empowered now to um, to even think about it differently, uh, whether you want to do something about it or not. But, you know, you have a little more background around it. Um, So there's this very high chance that people know about it before I even have a chance to tell them. However, um, I don't, I don't disclose it on a first date. I wait until I feel like I want to go further with this person. So it's not something that I like put as part of my identity. Like, oh, I'm a strategist. I'm French, Italian and I have herpes, you know, <laughs> it's not really like that. It's like I don't consider it like necessary to, to to tell like or talk about it with coworkers or friends or anything, but with people who are going to end up in my bed um, there's whenever i feel like you know this is coming up then that's when i bring it up you know and sometimes i've had partners who are like i i start the first sentence and they're like oh i already know all about it Um, and other partners who didn't know and i you know disclosed it and uh, they We talked about it. We talked about information about it, um, and you know, they they could decide whether they wanted to move forward or step back.
2: For someone that is listening to the show that has herpes, what would be the one thing you'd say to them? Mm,
0: That's a good question. I would say so many things. Um, I would tell them that out of I would tell them that they're not alone, that, you know, one in six American has it. Most people who have it, actually 80% of people who have it, don't know they have it because the symptoms are so mild, or they experience no symptoms, that they they are not aware of their status. Yet, um, it doesn't mean that they don't have the virus in their body, and the people who know they have it are likely to experience the same emotional um, struggles. And so herpes is much, much, much more present than the amount of conversation that happens around it. And that is not to be mistaken with the fact that because herpes is not talked about in you know, a genuine way, nobody has herpes. So I would want to tell them that they're not alone. Um, and maybe another thing uh, that I would want to tell them is to find someone that they trust to have like a constructive conversation and maybe give it a try to telling those people i mean the most fascinating thing that happened to me when i started being open about it was that people were open about it it was amazing when when you know i did this presentation at my former um, uh, employer uh, company where it was like 80 people and i I talked about the blog, and I disclosed that I had herpes. And and after that presentation, you have no idea the amount of people I've like. Oh, I'm in the same camp. I have herpes too. I have HPV. My girlfriend has HPV. My like coworkers, friends, relatives, everybody told me about their sexual health, and you could tell that like me initiating that conversation kind of gave them permission to talk about it and that, um, that they were so relieved that someone was able to, they, they, f- they found it brave, but at the same time I was like, but you know, it's not that brave because you have it too and you're telling me. And you see, like, it's just a conversation that we're all able to have. It's just a matter of who will say it first, you know? Um, so I would try to have that little experiment of trying to tell, you know, two or three people and chances are that they either have something and they will tell you too, because when you show vulnerability, people uh, are vulnerable to um, or feel comfortable to be so uh, or they will know someone who has it and will be able to tell you like, you know, you're not you're not alone. Like, I totally know someone else who has it and that's how they deal with it or or whatever. So when you start, when you're the initiator of the conversation, very often people open up and that makes you feel like, OK. Actually, I'm not alone. I thought I was alone, but I'm not, you know? So Lorena and I had met the week before that
2: interview, and we met at Touchpoint, which is the topic of our next segment. Touchpoint, if you haven't heard of it before, is a monthly town hall about love, sex, and relationships in the modern age. Seriously, what is a better way to end shame around sex than to basically host a town hall and invite everyone you know to talk about it? And this is where we'll end our last story for this episode. After the break, I'll take you along for the ride with me and we'll talk to Jared Matthew Weiss, founder of Touchpoint, and a few others from that evening. This podcast is brought to you by Cambio, a brand new place for young adults to work on their sex lives and relationships without the awkwardness. Remember our friend Matt from the first episode? Well, this is his company and yours truly is involved as a coach on the platform because I am really fired up about their vision. You basically can think of the coach as a personal trainer for your intimate life. The process is really simple. Check out cambio.co forward slash future of sex and take two minutes to map out exactly what you want to work on. You'll then be recommended their three best coaches for you that specialize in your areas of interest. Pick one that feels like the best fit and schedule in a free 45-minute intro call to fill out if you'd like to work with them. The Cambio team have also extended a $25 discount for listeners of this podcast to give it a shot. You'll find the code at cambio.co forward slash futureofsex. sex. Worth a few minutes to explore if you're thinking of making a change and it's totally free to chat with a coach and get their perspective. So why not give it a shot? (laughs) It was my first time at Touchpoint. The town hall about sex, love, dating, relationships in the modern world. I really didn't know what to expect. And in the days leading up to the event, I had a couple of emails come through. Questions and topics for discussion were really being crowdsourced online by the community. And Jarrett emailed me to make sure I was coming and said, what do you want to vote on? What do you want to discuss that night? And I looked through the topics, and I was like, wow, these topics are amazing. They range from how do I know I'm good in bed to what should I do with my pubic hair, to what does a healthy, open relationship look like? So how do I manage my jealousy? I knew I was in for a treat. So I arrived at this Lower East Side loft where Touchpoint was being held and settled in with a group of people who were already huddled around cushions and there were couches across the room and it was a very dimly lit, open loft space. Jared began the session. Uh, Have you had your fantasies met? From here, people were encouraged to speak up and share what their fantasy was. And just like that, the conversation opened up. No panelists, no featured speakers, just real people having a real conversation. I talked to a young man after Touchpoint and just asked him, like, why do you keep coming back? What, what is it that you like so much about Touchpoint? People standing to the side and saying,
1: yes, I've had sex in Central Park. I have had whips and other BDSM-related activities go on with me, and I enjoyed it. And hearing people say what their other fantasies were outside of that, I want to be in a threesome. I want to uh, have sex in public, or I've been a member of the Mile High Club and people feeling easy flowing with that information and getting into the point where somebody felt so brave as to share that they have had uh, herpes and other STI-related situations, that is an indicator of how safe an environment it is because that is not something you would easily share unless you've built up a huge store of personal strength and resilience against whatever the judgments might be not even with your friends.
4: Since we were little, we've been told to like not touch our private parts, not show, cover them, um, like not look at dirty magazines, mm-hmm. not see R-rated movies. And now as an adult, it still feels like this, this very private thing that only happens between you and the person you're sleeping with or the people that you're sleeping with. So it's kind of scary. I think deep down, like I still innately kind of, not innately, but I grew up thinking that it was like a secret. I mean we just want to be loved and this is this really cool way uh, that we get to connect with other humans and all of us know so little (laughs) and because of not talking about it very often it's just it's fascinating to see people's minds blown just by really simple things that people share.
1: It becomes this place where I think everybody you know comes in hoping they're gonna hear like one thing just one thing it could be around it could be around you know, communication. It could be around, you know, STIs. It could be around, uh, you know, oral sex. It could be around dating. It could be around you know, uh, relationship building. It could be around so many different things, but like every time somebody hears something and they're like, oh wow, like that couple's doing that and that person tried this and like, this person read that book and I think I should read that book. And like, it becomes a place where there's real human connection that's being cultivated and really, really interesting insights and wisdom that is being cultivated through experiences that people are sharing. Um, and it's a it's a powerful platform.
2: Now there's one thing you should know about Jared. Jared used to be considered a lifestyle expert, big business on TV. He had an advice column at Shape magazine, regularly appeared on the Tyra Banks show, Tim Gunn's Guide to Style and the Today Show. And I had no idea when we first met in East Village and just sharing our stories on this park bench. And he told me he was dissatisfied with where he was at, even though he kind of made it big in in the media, at least to me but was moved to find another way to connect with people. His moment was hearing renowned sex therapist and author Esther Perel, speak to an audience of thousands at Summit at Sea. After Esther was speaking, he found himself sitting at a table with a group of strangers, reflecting on her talk, which was about monogamy and relationships. And this moment, this moment at a table with a bunch of strangers was the moment, touch point, was born. I think at
1: the time they were talking about radical transparency and one girl said like you should never tell your boyfriend like all the people you've slept with like he'll never trust you and another girl was like no radical transparency is the only way you have to be honest about everything and I was listening to this like dialogue and it just hit me so hard it hit me like a ton of bricks I was like you know I knew a few years ago they didn't need another expert they didn't need a talking head they didn't need more advice but I didn't know what I could facilitate that would really help people like myself like these people at this table and when it it hit me at that table like they don't need another talking head they don't need another expert what they need is each other because they have so many beautiful perspectives and experiences that if we could cultivate a space in which people could actually share these these dialogues and then we could aggregate these learnings and these experiences like this this is the future. The future is actually just collective consciousness. It's just getting us all in a room. So I marinated on that for a couple months until I finally pulled the trigger and I called my friend Allie and said, "Can I have your living room for a few hours?" And she said, "Sure. And now we're here.
2: So now from a living room to a monthly spot in New York City, and you know it's moved to also to San Francisco. Jared's been to Mexico City, who knows, hopefully it'll go to Australia and reach your city soon. because of Cindy, Lorraine and Jared's stories and just meeting them made me feel like a, I was part of this group of pioneers actively making moves to break down the stigma around sex and I hope you can see that too. To be honest, when I first embarked on this project, I thought I would be talking mostly to therapists, sex experts, right? People who had the license to talk about sex and Definitely, there's going to be some therapists on the show, but this feeling of meeting other people outside that that we're talking about sex in such a free and open way was so refreshing. It was so refreshing to know that these communities are out there. They already exist. It's not just individuals being active, but whole communities and people who are actively cultivating groups of people and encouraging others to speak up and supporting each other. Clearly, the conversation is changing. So it used to be you were friends with people
1: as a kid based on where you lived, just location. And so if you were the weird kid, quote unquote weird kid in your school, you were the weird kid in your school. But now, a kid can go on the internet and find all the weird kids all around the world and then they're no longer so isolated and so alone. And I think that same sort of thing happens with sex where if you, you if you were the only kid in your school or... Let's, it doesn't have to be school, it's adults. Or you're you're into rope play or you're into leather or you're into whatever sort of kink you may have. You might have thought you were so weird and alone. And now there's the opportunity to find other people who have that same kink or that same fetish or whatever it may be. And so you're never alone anymore and you can find like-minded people so much easier.
2: So that brings our episode on taboo and shame to a close. Wow, we have met some amazing people and heard some great stories. And let me tell you, we're just getting started. I will say this about Shame and Taboo. I feel like we've travelled a really long way since the Victorian era in opening mindsets and liberating sexuality. But many people still have this guilt about their own sexuality that prevents them from fully living an authentic life. And it feels like we're at a crossroads, struggling between social conformity and these new open mindsets. And as we look to the future, my hope is that we can abandon all the bullshit, all the suppression, and start to really learn from others who are normalizing the conversation and promoting diversity and realness in sex. And I hope it's not it's not gonna to be too far off where this isn't a crazy conversation to be having. So,
3: what is the future of sex? One day, nobody should ever have to be ashamed or embarrassed ever again about having a naked photograph or a sex tape of themselves posted on the internet because it's simply just the natural human part of who we all are. When you take the shame and embarrassment out of sex, when you normalise and socialise it, you completely defuse revenge porn. And you defuse many other things with the potential to make human lives very unhappy.
4: I mean, I think with our generation, as we become parents, I think we're going to take some of the taboo out of sex. I mean, just like we're taking the taboo out of lots of things. um, We're changing the way people think and what's important to them. And I think deep connection is important. And sex is a huge part of life. So I think taking the taboo out is the future.
1: Like even what we're talking about here, like having a podcast about the future of sex and, and hosting a discourse, you know, people like you are manifesting a future in which Sex and relationships can be not the most stressful and most, you know, shameful parts of our lives, but the most fruitful and the most empowering.
2: Thanks for listening to Future of Sex, the podcast that explores the evolving worlds of sex and tech. If you like the show, go rate us on iTunes, subscribe and tell your friends about it. Thanks to Cindy, Jared and Laureen for being a part of this episode. If you want links to what they're doing, make sure you check out the episode show notes at futureofsex.org. And to follow along for all the latest episodes and upcoming guests, go like our Facebook page. This podcast was produced and edited by Chad Michael Snavely. To get in touch or check out the other podcasts Chad is producing, find him on Twitter at Chad underscore Michael. And if you have any questions or feedback or just want to keep up with what I'm doing, follow me on Twitter at brinycole. Cole. On the next episode, I'll be taking you inside an exclusive underground women's club as we explore the future of being bi-curious. This is going to be a lot of fun. I'll talk to you all soon.